0: This week, we have another terrific conversation with Aaron Mail, who currently resides in Toronto, Ontario. We talk with Aaron about how he transitioned from working in the software industry to bartending, how he developed his love of crafting cocktails, the challenges of working in a managerial role, and his current role as Canadian brand ambassador for Tia Maria and Tisorono. As always, check out the links in the show notes and enjoy the podcast.
1: Okay, we're back with another episode of the Industry Podcast. I am Kip Saunders. I'm your host, producer extraordinaire Dan Soretta is to my right. How are you doing, Dan?
0: I'm still awesome, man. Yeah,
1: every <laughs> week, another week of awesome. Oh,
0: fuck yeah. got to <laughs> think positive because this is a shit show going on now. Yeah, that it's,
1: yeah. <laughs> it's uh, riding out red zone, waiting for them to kick our ass back to gray.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> COVID variants, come on.
1: Oh, well, we have, as usual, an amazing guest for you today. Aaron Mel is going to be joining us really soon. Before we get to that, we should mention that they haven't hit the archives of the industry podcast lately. You should be checking out some of the great conversations we've been having. We had Lauren Ballard last week. Week before that, we had Nicole McCallum and...
0: Rodrigo Cedeño of yes. Tequila Tromba.
1: Tequila Tromba. That was excellent. Yeah. Um, interview and before that let's see before that we had lauren reedy that's correct uh, coming to us from hollywood that that was was a very hilarious conversation as well yes so check out the archives also please subscribe rate and review the show that helps tremendously if you want to be on the show and if you have you are a service industry professional or have a story that coincides with the service industry then you should be dming us at the industry podcast you should also follow us at the industry podcast on instagram we have Finally made it over a 1,000 followers, so well, that's good for us. Thanks, yes. folks. Okay, so, oh, yes, and, of course, as always, at Zach Hanna Design for all your great graphic design needs. If you've seen our beautiful Instagram page, he is wholly responsible.
0: Correct, and there's always link, links in the show notes to Zach's uh, Instagram profile as well.
1: Zach, if you're listening, thanks again. I wonder if he even listens. I think he listens. No, nah. probably not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, let's get to today's guest, who I'm sure will listen from now on. Yes. Uh, a good friend of, of, of my bar, Sugar Run, in Kitchener-Waterloo. Is, he has guest bartender there before, and he is the ambassador for Tia Maria Liqueur. Aaron Mail, how you doing, buddy? I'm great. How are you guys doing?
0: Oh, doing well doing well yeah as Excellent. good as, thanks as, for good as, me as on. Can be.
1: well no thanks for doing it this was a bit of a short notice booking we had a cancellation so we appreciate you jumping on pleasure i guess none of us have anything else to fucking do right now right so <laughs> actually not gonna lie this
2: is the most i've sat in one position or one spot so far today so you know <laughs> oh, well, there you go
1: well it did take us a while to connect so maybe. <laughs> yeah. so you're you're living in toronto right now correct Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah, Hamilton, born and raised. Uh, I spent some time
2: living just around the corner from your bar Mm -hmm. um, for a number of years uh, and moved to Etobicoke a few years ago at West End Toronto. So,
1: So, yeah, you're in uh, a complete lockdown still there, correct? Oh, no, we're still great. They just released the stay at home
2: order and said non-essentials can open. So malls are something of a shit show
1: right now. Mm -hmm. Ugh. And you haven't been working in a physical bar, like as your regular job, for some time now, correct? Uh, it has been just over two years. Yeah, it's over two oh. years, and that's for that time you've been doing the ambassador thing. Yes. And, and we are going to get to that, um, but let's start at the beginning right. uh, back up and uh, talk to us how you broke it. Talk to us about how you broke into the service industry originally. Where? What was the job? How much time do we have? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was actually just finishing
2: high school starting college uh, in Hamilton where I grew up and was looking for a beer money gig and figured you know what if I could become a waiter I could make some sweet tips so I applied at a bunch of restaurants and the local Kelsey's at the time hired me but for the back of house so I started off as a line cook at a Kelsey's and uh, I think within the first eight weeks I went from low man on the totem pole to running the kitchen because there was <laughs> attrition and you know how it is yeah, with yeah. the service industry you know rotating door of staff and whatnot so especially uh, in the back of the house i find right yeah yeah, yeah. And this was you know back in the 90s um from there i moved on to uh, a restaurant called la cantina it's probably one of hamilton's best italian restaurants it's been around for over 30 years it's it's a legend um and that's where they taught me how to actually like cook and and be creative with food and flavors and not just, you know, follow a spec book like Kelsey gave me. Right. Um, and it was a ton of fun. And I learned a lot about foods and flavors and how to combine things I wouldn't normally have done. Uh, and then I was forced by my now ex-wife to take a hiatus from the service industry, partly why she's an expert. that's a whole <laughs> other <of me. laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I woke up, I was I was doing software and IT work, which is actually when I moved to, to Kitchen in Waterloo. I was okay. working for a software company there because, you know, what else are you doing? KW. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You work at one of the universities or in software. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> hey, who was the software company, if you don't mind me asking?
2: Uh, I worked for OpenText.
0: Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. I, did, I did quality assurance software testing for OpenText uh, oh. for a number of years. But I had gotten back into the food and drink scene, and a friend of mine took me to the restaurant Canada show. Uh, here in Toronto, held at the at Enter the Care Centre. It's a it's a massive show. Mm-hmm. And there was a stage that was doing cocktail demos. And at the time, to me, cocktails were, you know, hurricane glasses that were funny colours with fruit and whatnot and slushy and sweet and girls liked them and whatnot. I either drank beer, gin and tonic, or scotch when I went out with my friends. Uh, but I saw this thing on cocktails, and I actually got to see uh, Dale DeGraff, the king of cocktails, uh, there... And and he did a presentation and Frankie Soleric, who owns a bar in Toronto called Bar Chef, which is known for its molecular approach to cocktails. Mm -hmm. uh, And I saw them do this thing and my mind was literally blown. I went, wait, what? I can do the same thing with a drink that I can do with food, only more. And I went home and I started playing that night. Um, Not going to lie, the first few cocktails were atrocious.
1: Yeah, they always are. (laughs) And let's let's be honest, that never stops. Like when you're experimenting, like yeah, right. you, can be, you can be crafting cocktails for twenty years, you're still gonna make some total shit. Exactly. <laughs> so I I mean I became one of those home mixology
2: people and I just sort of studied and I delved in and I did all kinds of research and I entered a cocktail competition one day. Actually, it was the DiSorono mixing star.
1: Oh yeah,
2: all right. Back in back in 2013, and I made the finals and I walked into the room the day of the finals and I went oh fuck no because I saw the list of names on the board and it was the top 20 bartenders in Toronto these guys are legends in their they still are and I was literally turning around to walk out and two guys walked in they convinced me to stay and do it and at the end of it a gentleman came over and he said you know I love your passion I love your creativity I'm a bar manager of a bar on King West Uh, I need a head bartender and the job is yours if you want it And I'm like okay so we chatted money and responsibilities and whatnot and i called them the next day and i'm like i'm in i'll start in two weeks
1: oh wow so, so that's, that's that's a big life change for you like now um, Huge. Well, yeah so are you still married at this point or, or yeah so you had to cut actually i'm loose. on to number two by that point okay oh <laughs> okay so maybe the new wife's a little bit more sub- or the or the wife at the time was a little bit more supportive of your uh, your foray back into the service industry or was it where did you get some pushback
2: no, I got I got some good support. I was actually dating my now second uh, mm-hmm. by that point. She wasn't really crazy about the hours because I had been working in software and now going yeah. back into you know hospitality. It was a bit of a struggle at one point. Um, made it work, but yeah, my first job as a bartender was a place called Brassai on King West in the Entertainment District that did ten million dollars a year in sale, and my average liquor order was thirty five thousand dollars a week. Jesus. Yeah, woo. Yeah. 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 So
1: it was literally deep end of the pool. Yeah. So like getting thrown back, it wasn't really your first bar job at all, right? That's really getting thrown into the deep end of the pool. So how did you handle all that without any like real experience or on the job training? Um, I think because I'd had that back of house experience, I was able to
2: bring certain skill sets like your multitasking, your cleanliness, your, you know, things like that to the bar. And I, I could sort of rely on that. Fortunately, I'm a quick study, and I'd been doing a lot of reading. I have a ton of books, as you can see behind me. Mm-hmm. Like one of those shelves is nothing but food and cocktail books, uh, and there's more in the kitchen. And there's books all over the place. It kind of looks like an indigo in here.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, but yeah, I just sort of like I'm like, okay, if this is the job, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it my all, and uh, I dug in. I spent a lot of time reading and practicing my technique, and asking questions, and sitting at bars on my days off talking to other bartenders and and
1: learning as much as I could, as quickly as I could just soak it up. At that point, are you already in charge of making the cocktail list or are you working under somebody else? Uh,
2: That was sort of shared between the bar manager, uh, whose name is John Gray. Uh, He's known for his work in in tequila and and agave-based spirits now. Uh, We sort of split that. so we had certain cocktails, certain spirits we had to use based on, you know, contracts. You know how it is with with brands and contracts. So they're like, okay, you have to have these spirits in your your cocktails. Uh, So he and I would split it and he'd be like, okay, go do some tasting and we'll play around and bring your best ideas forward and we'll see. And we would taste each other's and modify. And we actually got to collaborate and it was a great learning experience for me. I learned a lot about technique, ingredients, how to balance, uh, things like that. So uh, he was a really great tutor, mentor to me in that way oh great okay so like how long were you working at that place uh, i spent about a year and a half at brisaille uh which was a supper club so you know great food really intensive cocktail menu we did a little bit of molecular stuff here and there not to the level of bar chef but we got into playing with alginates and, and spheres and things like that but it was also a club so at one point you basically had to shut down the cocktail service and switch to a speed bar you know where you're pouring vodka sodas and Jaeger bombs and vodka mm-hmm. Red Bulls. You know, for four and a half hours. I was working four thirty to four thirty basically, and I would Ooh. take my first bathroom break at about three o'clock in the morning.
1: Oh wow! Um, Jesus, yeah, because you were so, just you were you were rammed like four so, people on. My arm. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about that that switch. Like, so you're you're going from sort of making some craft cocktails, yeah, and it's obviously that's drawing a certain type of crowd, and then boom, the Lights. Someone uh, flicks the light switch, and now it's just like fucking twenty-year-olds yeah. tipping quarters. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. It, it basically was. So I mean, uh, you know, about nine thirty,
2: quarter to ten, you'd start seeing the bottle service girls filter in, and the barbacks would start filtering in. And I mean, we'd have all our fruit pre-cut and stuff like that. That was, you know, day bar's job. But then you'd, you'd actually see the bar backs come in and start to like switch your well around you while you're working. And basically we had four wells on on the main bar and there was a back bar that had three and they would just come in and the back bartenders would just come in and set up their own stuff. But they would literally transform one well at a time from craft cocktail setup to hmm. speed bar. Oh, um, wow. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, you're still like, shutting down and so service bar would be like okay service bar was always the last one to switch because you know cocktails going into the dining room still need to mm-hmm. be made right so yeah uh, it was it was always sort of magical it's it's like a ballet right to watch you've got four six, four to seven people behind a bar and everybody just sort of moves in concert we all knew what we had to do uh, and we just sort of went okay brace for impact you know yeah. and then yeah. yeah yeah somebody hit the light switch and you're like okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, hey,
0: out, of, out of curiosity who owned the bar was it like a part of a consortium or is it just like a one-off
2: no it was like it was a group of guys i can't remember all of their names but they owned that uh a couple of them owned
1: a couple of other clubs uh yeah they've yeah. all yeah, since yeah. gone yeah. their own ways yeah so obviously for a spell there that was working out but how do you feel in general about the concept of a place that kind of goes from like a <laughs> that restaurant craft cocktail spot and then flips to a club to a club yeah. you know what? If, if you can manage to do it successfully and i've seen other places try and
2: not quite pull it off they always end up being one or the other they they have trouble doing that transition mm-hmm. um it was a lot of fun but the club aspect wasn't really for me my love is cocktails and craft yeah. cocktails and i wanted somewhere where i could go and have a little bit more freedom to, to play. I didn't want to have to be stuck using some of the brands that I had to use. I didn't like the club. Um, And so a a friend of mine uh, reached out and said, Hey, I know this Italian restaurant, they're looking for a bartender. At the time, all they had was like one of their servers going behind the bar and making the drinks. And they hadn't really had anybody running their bar program. Uh, So I moved from Versailles to a place called Campagnolo and took over, their cocktail program and all that the owner said to me was don't sign any contracts or agreements with, you know, Diage or Corby's or anybody like that. He's like, I don't want to be tied to any one group of spirits. And if you want to switch something up, great. Just finish what you've got on hand before sure. moving forward. So I actually got to play around and, you know, I, I did a lot of seasonal stuff. So, uh, cause that was big for me was making sure that my ingredients were fresh. Uh, I, I started doing all my juice of myself, like juicing my own lemons, my own limes and whatnot making all of that kind of stuff myself and give me sort of pride in my job and i got to experiment a lot more it was Mm -hmm. a lot of fun
1: yeah and at a slower pace too right so you're not like because i was like gonna say like the difference between like bartending at a nice craft spot and 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 then doing nightclub service i've I've done both of those as well it's like the difference between like djing in a upscale lounge and djing a wedding like yeah. you know where it's just like out of your control <laughs> after a while it's just like can, can you yeah. play
0: something good yeah
1: yeah, yeah. Hey, i <laughs> used to dj weddings i know exactly what oh, that, well, well, I've that, that one before all three of us
0: yeah, that's that, right. and I'm,
2: <laughs>
1: I'm guessing none of us ever want to do it again no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like so yeah. now you're at a slower place uh, pace spot and you can kind of yep. get like you have more time for creativity plus you yes. have a more appreciative audience for it
2: yeah, I did. I mean, it was a it was a small restaurant. It was, you know, 45 seats inside with another 20 on the patio. Uh, but they'd flip it to sometimes three times on a Friday, Saturday night. So I was still fairly busy. Mm-hmm. I did full dinner service at the bar because it was just me behind the bar. So it was a fairly small bar. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a great time. And then I just, I felt I needed to grow a little bit more. Uh, because it was an Italian restaurant, people would come in and they would order, you know, one or two cocktails, and then they would switch to bottles of wine. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it was, you know, cappuccino and espresso time. And I was also the barista, you know? Right. So, I mean, it was great, but I wanted more in the way of cocktails and I wanted to learn and work with somebody who could teach me more because I was working on my own and I was doing all my own creativity. I wasn't really, I was teaching myself, but I wanted to learn from somebody who knew more who could teach me stuff I never would have thought of. So I found a place called uh, Miss Things. It's still around. It's on Queen Western Parkdale. It's a great Polynesian fusion tiki style bar. And at that point in my education, Rum was, pardon me, Rick Kip. Rum yeah. was my weak spot. Oh, uh, that was it was mine when we opened sugar. Run, if that makes I, you, feel
1: better, <laughs>
2: <so>. <laughs> you know, um, I had taken, you know, a, a couple of, of spirits courses, like the Maison Pernod course, where you know you can spend a week on each spirit. But rum was still my weakest. I, it's not something I would normally drink when mm. I was drinking, so I didn't spend a lot of time studying it. I would, I had a couple brands I liked using for cocktails. Great. But yeah, I went and I worked with a guy named Robin Wynne, who's probably the best, most knowledgeable rum guy I know in -hmm. Canada. Uh, And I had a blast there. And he taught me a ton, not just about rum and tiki culture, but about managing a bar that in in different ways and and different
1: techniques, the way he set up his bar. And it's fantastic. Can you give us a couple examples of uh, like some of his different techniques that you learned? Uh, Yeah. One of the things that we did there,
2: because... It was such a busy spot and we did the math. We, he and I would make over 600 cocktails on a Friday night and being Tiki, you're getting a lot of different juices and a lot of different flavors and a lot of different ingredients combined, you know, not making a lot of old fashions or Manhattans that are, you know, two ingredients, stirred, bitter garnish go. So he actually came up with uh, a two bottle system. So cheater bottles on the rail uh, and just used color, color coded electrical tape. Yeah. Right. So you had all of your spirits in one bottle and all of your juice and syrup mix in another bottle, mm-hmm. mixed to mix to proper proportions. So take your margarita, for example, you had your agave and your triple, sorry, your Cointreau in one bottle, you had whatever your lime juice and whatever we were doing at the time. And it was literally just a two bottle pour eight yeah. seconds, boom, you know, two ounces each, shake it and go. So you're able to turn out a margarita in 30 seconds
1: instead of two minutes. Okay, so I, I'm glad you brought this up because we started moving in that direction as well. And I just, I, there is a bit of a pushback among some of the nerdier cocktail, craft cocktail crowd about batching. But I always feel that a lot of the pushback from these people is because they don't work in the type of bar where you're pushing out hundreds of cocktails at night. Like if you if you have time to like, if you have time to craft every single cocktail that's fucking great but it probably means that bar's not going to be around for too much longer <laughs> <laughs> like uh, but uh, but when you when we first opened sugar on we we didn't realize we kind of turned into a, a nightclub that was just pumping out craft cocktails like and it was crazy like you know cocktails that take several steps to make but you're making hundreds in the evening you know just like we couldn't get them out fast enough so batching, talk to me a little bit about how you feel about batching and whether it's a valuable tool or if it's a bastardi- bastardization. I,
2: uh, <laughs> I'm on both sides. Uh, I, I, I have no problem with batching. And when it comes to you know certain cocktails, absolutely, I'm all for batching, especially things like old fashions. If you know you're going to go through enough old fashions in a week, why not just batch it, right? Yeah. Or if you've got you know a Manhattan or a Rob Wright, especially for certain holidays, certain events, if you know – you're going to go through on January 25th, you know you're going to go through buckets of Rob Roy's or, mm. or, or Bobby Burns's or whatever. Why not, right? right. Uh, if you're doing large events, if you've got a wedding going on, absolutely you want to batch, mm. right? Because nobody wants to wait in line at the bar for for that one guy at the head of the line who's ordering like six old fashions. You know what? Yeah. No. I, or or worse, six different cocktails. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and yeah, I mean, for those big bars that are, are pumping out a lot of cocktails in a night, I, I, I'm okay with the idea of, you know, the the two bottle pour. Maybe not necessarily pre batching the whole cocktail, because it kinda right. does take away from the craft I experience.
0: And the what show for I the add?
2: the show for the guests, which I also yeah. think is important and I mean, still.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I kind of made up for that with a little bit of working flair, mm-hmm. very little bit of working flair. I'm definitely not a flair bartender by any means. But just add those little touches, those those, you know, spoon twirls and and whatever, you know. Long pours the bottle, and the way you snap. whatever the case may be, just to give them that little bit of show, Mm. right? Once you put your tins together, spin your tins, double shake, things like that, just to give them that little bit of wow factor. And then you're like, boom. They're like, wow, that was amazing. That came out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah, They like that kind of idea. But at the same time, I've seen bars that go into batching because they're lazy. Yes. Right? So, but yeah, taking the time to craft a cocktail, I love doing it. And and being able to show the bottles and this is what I'm doing
1: and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I agree with that as well. I also think that when people get a real blowback on the batching, though, know, it's kind of like, well, the, you're kind of missing the point. The crafting of the cocktail was in the development of the cocktail. That's yeah. what craft, you know. So once it's been crafted, you're still getting a, an original creation. You're just, yeah. getting, you're just getting it faster. Absolutely, <laughs> and I mean, there's, I mean, milk punch. There's no
2: way that you can't right. not prep a milk punch, right? It's just, right. it's not. You can't yeah. do it. You know, uh, and some of those things, punches, things like that, absolutely pre-batch. I mean, there was a time when I was the bar manager at a place called The Cloak, uh, which is also a speakeasy in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we did very little. The only batching that we did was for some of our punch bowls, right? Because we were serving punch bowls, you just don't have the time to sit there with, you know, six or seven different bottles pouring out, you know, half a bottle of this or whatever. Uh, So we would prep, you know, a couple, you know, each night ahead of time so that, People order a punch bowl. Okay, boom, ice, pour, garnish, go, right. type deal. But pretty much everything else we did there was crafted,
1: you know. Mm-hmm. And so you uh, were you working at the cloak after um, after Things, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, okay, so you, you you leave the things and then you go to cloak. And now this is a, this is your first time managing a bar. Yes. Yeah. So talk to me about uh, the difference of responsibility there. What did you have to learn? Managing people. I think was probably the biggest thing I had to learn. I mean,
2: I had all of the other systems down. I had inventory sheets and I had costing sheets and, you know, uh, ideas for crafting cocktails and putting a menu together. And I made it collaborative and I wanted to make it inclusive and get everybody's, you know, I wanted something from everybody on the menu. Uh, But it was that management, it was that leadership um, role that I hadn't had a lot of experience in that I had to sort of
1: take on. Now, a place like that, I would imagine the staff is a bit older though and more experienced. Or were you still having lots of young servers? Um, there was a. I mean, obviously, I was the old man behind the bar. Uh,
2: <laughs> I was in my late thirties, early forties by then. My my other main bartender was in his mid to late twenties, and we had one serve one one or two servers who were younger twenties. So okay, so all there was a,
1: yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, Okay. So, well, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the challenges of managing a a staff that's diverse in age like that, because I always talk about this with my own uh, managers when I'm trying to train them up. It's like, you can't, you got to treat everybody fairly, but you can't treat everybody the same. Yeah. Yeah. You have to
2: be fair to everybody, but you can't treat everybody equally. Right. You have to be able to learn how to communicate with different personalities because you know, if, if I wanted to give some coaching to one person, Saying the exact same thing to the other person in that role, well, it's not going to come across. So, learning to deal with different personalities and communication, and again, being respectful, being fair—you know, these these are these are skills that you know you have to develop as, as a manager, as a leader. And it was interesting watching myself develop. You know, there were times when I'd be like, "Look," I'd go to my the GM of the of the restaurant, be like, "Look, here's the situation. What's the best way to deal with it? Can we do this? Can we do that?" Uh, and getting feedback, I'm like, "Okay." six months ago, I wouldn't have thought to ask that question because I would have just wanted to handle it myself. But I know Mm -hmm. that I I was seeing myself develop while helping to develop others and and communicate with others.
1: Yeah, I think that an underrated um, part of being a good manager slash leader is understanding what you don't know and not having an ego about that. You know, like you can always learn, like I learned stuff from the 20 year olds who come to work for me all the time. A lot of times it's about social media, but still, (laughs) you can always learn something about from somebody. Okay. So at the cloak, what kind of, uh, so what kind of cocktails are you making there? What sort of, how often are you turning them over? Or did you have sort of like a standard list that you just rolled with? When I took on the role, there was no menu. So we ran the first few weeks
2: actually without a menu, kind of like the way Civil Liberties runs. It just sort of, everything was one-offs. Okay. Oh, and while we were doing that, we sat and developed a bunch of cocktails. I brought some that I had in my repertoire and, and a couple of the bartenders brought stuff that they had in their repertoire. I'm like, okay, let's put the menu together. Boom. This will be a good starting point. And now let's continue to develop it to add on to it. We'll take a look in a couple months. And if this one just isn't selling, we'll drop it and replace it. So there was always some form of change, but there was a core of cocktails that mm-hmm. we, we kept. On a, on like, they just stayed because they sold well, costing was good and, and whatnot. But yeah, uh, always looking for new things. We tried laying out the menu in different ways to change up the experience. So we started off breaking it down by spirit. So these are six vodka cocktails and these are six gin cocktails. It was actually quite an extensive list. I think we had 20 or 30 cocktails on our menu. Yeah, it's a lot. And then we started breaking it down differently, saying, okay, if you want something light and refreshing, here's what you can have. If you want something, you know, spirit forward, here's what you can have. If you want something, you know, in different styles uh, to sort of change up the experience. And that we would usually do when we were changing up the menu, when we we're taking, making a significant change to the menu. Mm-hmm. And what do you, we're like, okay, let's take off eight cocktails and put on six or seven. All
1: right. Go ahead. Oh, and what do you, I'm um, sorry, you froze there for a second. I think I started talking over top of you. Sorry about that. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's the challenges. It's another challenge of COVID life, the Zoom call interview. <laughs> oh, right. So talking about these different ways to arrange a list, I'm always really interested in this because I'm like constantly trying to open new places and always looking for new ideas and a a quote unquote, perfect way to do things, maybe a standard way to do things. Do you think there is a standard best way to arrange a cocktail list or does it depend on the place or, or is there something, or do you prefer one way to another way? I I think it definitely, it depends on the establishment,
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, the vibe they're going for. One thing I hate seeing uh is done by price point. Oh yeah, that's the worst. Right. <laughs> Start here because it's gonna get to a point people are gonna be like, okay, they're getting more I'm just gonna stop here. Yeah, and, stop you know, it right
1: here. It's, yeah. They're gonna stop
2: about two two thirds of the way down the menu and that yeah. bottom half of the menu might be your best half, but they're not gonna see it because they, they've stopped that way. Yeah. Other than that, I think whatever works for the establishment, whether it's you know, by spirit or by style or by Whatever the case may be, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, classics versus contemporaries versus, you know, craft. I've seen cocktail menus laid out like that. Like, these are our house. These are our classics.
1: Yeah. I've kind of tried all the different ways, even in my, even in like one bar. Yeah. uh, yeah, But it's kind of like what you were talking about with Cloak as well. Like, and I, I have never really settled on a perfect way to do it. And I just think maybe that maybe you're right it just sort of depends on the kind of list you're trying to craft and the kind and what suits the vibe of the spot and sometimes like many different ways of doing lists can suit the same spot absolutely absolutely and uh yeah i don't think there is a perfect formula
2: or a perfect way to to build a menu it's it's what works for you at the time because like you said what works now might not work on your next menu. you might want to change it up and that also does it, it. brings variety, so that when you get your regular guests coming back, they're like, "Ooh, something different, something new," you know.
1: Um, well, thanks for th- thanks for nothing, Aaron. I was hoping for a perfect answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, perfect answer is there is no perfect answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. That's real helpful. Um, hey, <laughs> I <AI truck. laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I know you were doing um, or you had been doing competition bartending, but uh, were you still doing this through your entire time at Miss Things? I, Cloak or yeah. Okay. So talk to me about some of the competitions you entered and your experiences with those first competition.
2: Well, like I said, the first one I
1: did was, was De I'm sure my drink was abysmal.
2: Uh, (laughs) It was, it was just a riff on a stone sour. Um, Okay, not going to lie. Well, everything's a riff on something though, in fairness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I fell in love with the, the energy that comes off of competition, both the preparation. So from concept to prep and perfection, perfecting it, and then the actual execution that day. Some of my favorites were Made With Love uh, back in the day. Uh, I did Made With Love a number of times, which is, uh, it's a national competition, which can get really, really big. I was invited to be part of the Grey Goose Masters one year, and this was back when Grey Goose launched VX, which is their, their cognac-infused mm-hmm. vodka. I was given a bottle to play with ahead of time. They're like, play with it, taste it, whatever, just don't tweet about it yet, I'm like, okay. I actually won for the province of Ontario and got to go up against three others in the national finals, which were held at Goldie Hawns Cottage up in up in the Muskokas. Oh, wow. Which was really cool experience. They flew us up there in a float plane and-
0: Oh, cool. You know, yeah.
2: yeah. What else have I done? Geez. Um, I came in second place at uh, Bacardi Legacy one year. That's a big uh, one. Yeah, yeah. There, there was, that was a lot of fun. I mean, cocktails are always, cocktail competitions are always a lot of fun because A, you're hanging out with your friends, but you're competing against your friends in the industry. And no matter what, you th- again, like you said, you can always learn something from somebody else. You'll see somebody's cocktail presentation be like, I never thought of that. I want to try doing that now. Whether it's a new skill or a, a technique, an ingredient, things like that. I never thought to try making my own vermouth with fresh hyssop, you know. And then I saw somebody do that. I'm like, okay, I got to try this. Yeah. yeah. They're, and they're great experiences. You get to meet new people because you're not always... No, there's always a core of competitors at least there there was in toronto at one point but there's always newcomers and people are like i'm done competing i'm gonna judge or whatever but yeah
1: yeah i th- we've had a number of people on the show who have done a lot of these cocktail competitions and the one thing that like invariably comes up from every one of you who have done these i personally can't stand doing them but <laughs> like it takes a certain personality who wants to do that because it's a lot of yeah. It's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of work, frankly. And I'm just fucking lazy. <laughs> but uh, I, um, the, one, the one thing that always comes up is like the, the camaraderie and the people that you meet there that become sort of lifelong friends of yours that you yeah. never would have met otherwise. So I think that's kind of what you're saying as well. Yeah, I've, I've made friends that, you know, they live out in BC, but they were flown in here
2: for a cocktail competition and we're still great friends. And, you know, And without that competition would know these people which is really cool
1: yeah and it seems to be like a competitive situation but not like cutthroat at the Mm -hmm. same time yeah i know i mean everybody
2: wants the prize but we're all in the industry we all know what's at stake we're all being hospitable we're all having fun because you know Mm -hmm. we're also drinking while we're doing it so yeah Yeah,
1: but that's good because this can be kind of a petty industry in many respects we've all been through and worked at places where there's lots of backbiting and like uh, uh, you know stabbing people in the back talking about, about them behind their back oh so and so nice to your face but so and so's a fucking bitch and whatever and, and yep. so it's nice to hear that you can have these competitions without the same sort of thing going on yeah i've
2: i've seen that i've heard that but yeah at competitions i mean as much as i want to trounce the guy beside me or the guy who comes after me and you know, i want to kick his butt mm-hmm. and we'll trash talk each other but in the end you know it's it's a lot of fun, especially when some of these and some of these are actually for good causes. Some of them are now more uh, philanthropic fundraising style competitions, things like that. It's good to see, and and people still all come together, and they're like, "Hey, in the end, you did an awesome job. Props, whatever the case may be."
1: Yeah, and it's, it's I think it's cool. It's it's got, almost like a a neutral ground, even though we're all competing. It's like we're in the right. Switzerland. And like you mentioned earlier, all learning from each other at the same time, which is nice, right? Like you, do you find that you come back from every one of those, uh, competitions with a whole fucking host of new ideas swirling around in your head? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm like, okay, you know what?
2: Uh, I did this competition. i got going to go home and dig up my ISI gun because yeah. now I want to play with foams or I want to try
1: hyper infusing something or, you know, I, I got to get a porthole or whatever right. <laughs> the case may be. Yeah. So, so uh, can, what, like, what would you say was one of your favorite cocktails? Can you describe what if you can remember them, describe one of your favorite cocktails that you made for one of these competitions. I'm going to go back
2: to my first made with love. Okay. So we went and attended the qualifiers and they, there's just like 35 qualifiers and they took the top 17. I placed 14th that time. I was still very, very young in my bartending career uh, at the time. And then with Made With Love, you're actually assigned a spirit by one of the sponsors. And fortunately, I was assigned a spirit that I knew well. I was given uh, Jim Beam Devil's Cut, which uh-huh. is, you know, it's a, it's a great bourbon. It's a great ri- uh, expression of their bourbon.
1: Uh, and so I wanted to sort of celebrate it and have I- fun with it. I'm just going to cut you off for one quick sec. Just to, for anybody who doesn't know what devil's cut is, can you describe how it's different than regular champagne? Abs-
2: sure. So, you know, for, for people that know about spirits and, and aging spirits and barrels, what evaporates during the aging process in a barrel is called the angel share. Because mm-hmm. it evaporates, it goes up. The devil's cut is what's left in the barrel after it's emptied. Right. So once they empty the barrel out for bottling, there's still whiskey in that wood. Yeah. So what they did was they found a way to extract that whiskey out. So... The angel's share evaporates. During uh,
1: aging, the devil's cut is what's left behind. Okay. And, that, and they're just using that in that expression of uh Jim Yes. Okay. Yeah. So and go. I think uh, Melikunas reps it, so nothing wrong with that. Mm. Yes. <laughs> anyway, continue yeah. with your cocktail. <laughs>
2: um, I, I wanted to, to both celebrate the spirit, but I also wanted to have some fun with it and be kind of playful. So I went with everything I could from the South. I did, uh, the cocktail was called The Devil Went Down on Georgia. Okay. Again, being being cheeky with the name, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, it was bourbon. It was Earl Grey tea. It was vin- uh, it was smoked peach juice, and uh, I made a blood orange and vanilla bean bitters, uh, kind of like a creamsicle bitters, which is actually really really cool. Mm. And I made a pecan and candied bacon brittle for the garnish. So. It was it was big. It was decadent. It was all things to the stuff. It was pecans. It was bacon. It was peaches. It was smoky. Yeah. It had that bourbon backbone with just that little bit of vanilla and bergamot for some balance. Sounds dangerous. It was it was really really tasty. <laughs> yeah. Not gonna lie. That was <laughs> that was one of my favorites. The other one would be probably from my Grey Goose VX competition. I just twisted a Vesper, mm. uh, so I took the Grey Goose VX. I used uh, Dylan's Rose Gin. And uh, a roasted lemon-infused Lille Blanc. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Yeah. Nice. It, was, it was actually really, really tasty. And I did uh, a red grape and cognac bitters. Oh, wow. Ooh. So you're really into making your own bitters as well. Yeah. Like I said, I was reading, you know, I have I have the bitters books. I've got shrub books on shrubs, you know, all the different cocktail techniques or, or ways to, like I said, I just
1: sort of, I geeked out, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my wife has just gotten into making her own bitters, so i'm gonna hook her up with you at some point and you can give her some pointers because she's got a few questions she's doing pretty well but we're selling them at the bar now they're doing pretty well but i know she's <laughs> always got a little couple questions every now and then so just take get to take, take advantage of you further <laughs> <laughs> thank you man anytime uh, okay so wait, are these competitions i know I'll, we'll get off them soon um i'm sure you have other things to talk about but <laughs> did you were a lot of these some of these speed competitions as well or are um, they mostly just the crafting cocktail one? It was, yeah. I am I mean, there are those,
2: there's the flair, there's the speed, there's whatever. Mm. It wasn't ever really my thing. I wanted to yeah. focus on the craft.
1: Right. Um, Some of them have both, like where you have the craft yeah. cocktail thing and then you also have the speed round or whatever. Yeah. And like I said, I've just, I was, I was always just more about the craft.
2: I'm like, you know what? You guys can go do the speed. Yeah. You can be as fast as you want. That's great. I'd rather, you know, take a couple minutes longer and make a, you know, a better cocktail, a neater cocktail. Yeah. You know.
1: Hot take, hot take on the industry podcast here. The speed competitions are stupid. <laughs> 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 like, what are you really proving? <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, you can make it the fastest, but what does it end up tasting like? I've, <laughs> I've been to some of these competitions, and the judges are not paying any attention to whether it tastes like it's supposed to. They might no. take a sip, and like, if it's really off, they'll be like, "Whatever." But you know, nine, I feel like nine times out of ten, that's not a cocktail you would accept if you went to a like a high end cocktail lounge. It's <laughs> probably yeah, it
2: yeah. Um, no. As you see, yeah, I, I agree. I'm I'm all about the, the craft because that's where the experience comes from, right? Watching the cocktail come together and then watch it get delivered and then you need to take that first sip. It's not about how quickly it gets there. I mean, yeah, yeah, I know I talked earlier about batching when you're doing volume. That's one thing. But speed bartending, no thanks.
1: Yeah. And I, it's an interesting thing to talk, talk about as well because, like, as a guest, when you go to a bar, like, I've certainly gone to a high-end cocktail lounge. No offense to Bar Chef, but this would be one of them where it's sometimes you're waiting like 30 minutes for a drink. And at some point you're like, okay, it got here. It was delicious. It looked really good. But I was thirsty that entire half hour. (laughs) You just want a drink at some point. So there's a fine balancing act between like making really high end, well-crafted cocktails, but also getting them out at a reasonable pace. Yeah. uh, And I think that can be done just by managing your prep
2: managing your setup you know if you need to then you know make a flavored syrup and so you're using one ingredient instead of you know earl grey tea and this and this and a syrup, Mm -hmm. right if you can combine some of those smaller elements you can still craft a gorgeous cocktail and saying i've got this homemade bergamot and vanilla demerara syrup blah 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 then wow that's craft and people are like okay cool give it to me Mm
1: -hmm. you know yeah, that's another thing that's gotten out of it. It's gotten some of this craft cocktail has got a little masturbatory, like where it's like, just how many different things can I put in the drink? And I just feel like after a while, like, am I really even tasting all these flavors? Or yeah. could you have cut three of those ingredients and in the cocktail would have tasted essentially the same? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, you get to a point, I'm like,
2: really? There's there's beetroot in this? Like, yeah. I can tell by the color there's beetroot in it, but. <laughs> yeah, you probably you could know. have done that with food dye. So, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, you get to a point where, yeah, it, there's seven ingredients in the cocktail. Are you going to taste all seven?
1: Probably not. No. So And, no. like, that's – honestly, that's a lesson I learned early in my career. When we first started – I first started crying, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing at all. And I was, like, like, more must be better, you know, like mashing 15 ingredients into a cocktail and then realizing, you know what? First of all, <laughs> like – what is this cocktail costing? Like, am I even making money off of it? And secondly, like the time it takes to do it. And then finally all that combined, can you even taste all these flavors? Like I'm, I'm sort of wasting time and money here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So to get off the competitions, these competitions did lead to your current job in a way, correct? Yeah. Like I said, I mean,
2: it was the De competition that got me into bartending as a career. Um, and I just sort of used those competitions to learn, grow, experience, meet people as I was developing my skills. But yeah, that's, you know, if it wasn't for that competition, I wouldn't be sitting here with you guys today.
1: Right. But I mean, even specifically, your job as an ambassador right now, did that not come through competition or was that more through someone scouting you at, at an actual bar? That was just uh, a friend of mine actually works for PMA, which is the agency that, that does the important
2: distribution for Team Maria and Di Serono. And they're like, hey, they're looking for an ambassador. I think you'd be a good fit. And they just sort of recommended that I should apply really. So it was just sort of, oh, I, okay. that was that was more
1: just a, a word of mouth thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, talk to me a, a little bit about your transition into that job and like how you're enjoying it, what you see are the advantages as opposed to still slinging drinks behind a bar, what you miss about maybe not doing that anymore. I know you still get to do it sometimes. So Yeah. Well, A, uh, age and broken <laughs> body. <laughs> oh, fuck. Tell me
2: about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Actually, I ended up having to take, close to six months off. I was in a really bad car accident at one point and just unable to work uh, for a period of time. And I realized that, you know, I don't need to bust my butt this badly anymore. Uh, you know, remarried in a different financial situation. I don't need to be working Tuesday to Saturday, four to four, killing myself and not having a life. And I had met at one point, uh, a brand ambassador uh, who's no longer in the role. Uh, his name is Matt Jones. He was, he was the whiskey chef. He was known, he was the the maker's mark, Jim Beam ambassador for years. Uh, And at the time, I didn't even know that brand ambassador was a career. Uh, And so when he told me what he did for a living, I'm like, I have pretty much all of those skill sets except for the bartending. And I kind of made that my five-year goal. Like in five years, I want to be a brand ambassador because I have the skill set for it. As I'm maturing, getting older, what am I going to do when I can't bartend anymore physically? It took me six years because I had to take those six months off. Uh, So I think I did pretty well there. Yeah, and like I said, it's just because I have that love of Serrano and Tia Maria from having worked with them previously, and having that skill set of, of communication and being able to talk to bartenders and and go behind a bar, uh, it just sort of led me down. It seemed like the natural next step for mm-hmm. for where I was at at the time. So.
1: so, so talk to our listeners a little bit about how um, about what the job entails. What do you do on a day to day basis as a brand ambassador? Okay. okay firstly, it's not as
2: glamorous as everybody thinks it is. It's got a glamorous name. Yeah, it's got a great (laughs) name. I am a brand ambassador, they're like, You know, but when people see me, they're seeing the glamorous side of my job. Like when I did my pop-up at Sugar Run, yeah, yeah, that's part of my job. And that's the glamorous part of my job. I'm showing up, I'm slinging drinks, I'm, you know, buying people cocktails and and whatnot and entertaining and giving out swag and... Talking about the product. Exactly, talking about the products, teaching people about the products, having a good old time. It's all a lot of fun, but there's, that's... 30 to 35% of my job. Right. Kind of like the difference between mixology and bartending, right? Mm -hmm. All bartenders are mixologists, but that's only a portion of what they do. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of my time email correspondence back and forth, PowerPoint presentations. I have become very, very quickly a wizard at PowerPoint, putting together presentations, reports, proposals, things like that, costing sheets for activations, be they large or small. Uh, Like when I was hired into the role, I was told the first two things I was doing Summer of 2019 when I started was Boots and Hearts, which is a three-day country music festival. Sounds terrible. And and, Sorry? (laughs) Sounds terrible. Just kidding. That's that's my personal
1: opinion. Continue. (laughs)
2: Um, And and something called the Rosé Picnic, which is basically a big bougie picnic where everybody wears pink and white and they drink champagne and blah, 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 blah. That sounds great. You know what? I was like, I wasn't looking forward to it, but it was a lot more fun than I thought. And
1: I'm not a country music fan. But I had a lot more fun at Boots and Hearts than I was expecting to. Yeah, I'm sure it's um, very fun. Not, I was just joking. I'm not trying to offend any lovers of country music on our program here. No, no, uh, it's good, But you know, there's a lot of it's, it's all that back end. Yeah, it's all that
2: back end work that I spend a lot of time doing. So emailing with you know the PR company and designing the bar and here's what we need for this and and layouts and and things like that. So I spend a lot of my time coordinating with marketing people, um, with designers, or, and these days with COVID. Uh, cocktail kits. I'm I'm running to Staples every few days, picking up batches of labels. Uh, I'm ordering stuff from Uline for for bottles to put kits together to ship out, all that kind of stuff. So over the last year, obviously the role has transitioned into something a lot more virtual and digital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are days I feel like Max Headroom, and I know I'm aging myself with that reference.
1: Yeah. That's right. I didn't get it at all.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, and if you didn't get it, kids, Google Max Hedrum. Yeah. Um, there you go. That was some um, weird shit.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it Matt Frewer was his name? Oh, I think? my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah Matt Frewer.
1: You're going to, you're going to age our demographic, a certain demographic later on <laughs> this podcast.
2: Shit. <laughs> I have a mushroom and then watch Max Header. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, kidding. Um,
0: just a mushroom?
2: <laughs> all things in moderation. It's, it's about moderation and, and responsible consumption. Yes. Uh, correct. But yeah, my, yeah, my average day is, is, is a lot of that. It's, it's reaching out to bars, setting up events, setting up training sessions, uh, doing those training sessions, making sure that, you know, I've got the product on hand. Um, Earlier today, I took what was it 800 glasses down to the LCBO head office uh, down on Queen's Key uh, for some kits they're putting together uh, for Deseronto for this summer. Yeah, doing all kinds of stuff like that. So,
1: it's, so the job is sort
2: of all over the place.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you're doing a lot of different things, but it sounds like a lot of it is very almost like office work. Like, um, how is that as a transition from being, going from like you know being in the heart of the action behind the wood to like being more of a desk job? It's not bad. Um, I like the fact that it gives me some variety and it breaks it up.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I spent 10 years in a cubicle at OpenText doing right. software and IT. So the office side of things doesn't really bother me. And like I said, it's a good way to break up the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes I'll do it in the morning. Sometimes I'll do some of it in the afternoon, depending on people's schedules and whatnot. Do I miss being behind the wood? Heck yeah, I miss being behind the wood. So I'm grateful for those opportunities that I get to do pop-ups and takeovers and and activations and things like that, um, where I can get behind the wood because that's where I feel most comfortable and I feel most at home behind the bar, entertaining and and having fun with people talking, making them cocktails, so.
1: Yeah, well, it's nice that you still get to do both, I guess, and hopefully once things get back to normal, you'll have way more opportunities like that. I know you're probably, it's all just office work right now for you, so. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of digital content, so I'm creating
2: training videos. Because I cover Ontario to BC, uh, I'm creating training videos for some of my teams at West. I go live on Instagram twice a week, one on Tuesdays for T Maria. I call Tia Tuesdays and one on Fridays. I call Fizz Fridays for Di Sirono, Uh where I make a couple of cocktails. You can tune in, you can watch, you can ask me questions. Sometimes I'll have, have guest speakers on where they can talk about their spirits. Like I've had other brand ambassadors on to talk about rum or vodka or scotch or gin or whatever. We'll make a couple of cocktails together and just, it's a really cool chat. You can watch it. I post them later so you can go back and rewatch if you miss it. So it's a lot of digital content like that, training videos and whatnot. That's why I
1: feel like Max Edrum. Yeah. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. But I just maybe remind our listeners again where they can watch that. Join me on my Instagram. It's at Aaron, A A R O N M underscore B A, every Tuesday and Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard. Mm, that's great. It's a cool thing. I mean, it's a nice way for you to still reach out to people during I mean, everybody's been trying to do like online content right now because yeah. that's all we really have. Right. And it, it's also something I think it's the one thing that we've talked to a few people on the show before, too, is that once things do get back to normal, assuming that's a thing that happens in our future, we, you we now have all these new avenues that we've all kind of this creative ways that we've all come up with to stay stay linked with each other. And in the service industry, a lot of these we can keep using. Like, so when things go back to normal, you can still be doing these classes. I can still be doing to go cocktails and like, yeah. you know, so there's, there are opportunities that have arisen through this nonsense. Oh yeah, absolutely.
2: And I mean, I, I think it's, it's great that the AGCO has loosened things up and you can do to go cocktails. And they said that that's gonna be, you know, sort of a, a permanent thing moving forward. So mm-hmm. that's always going to be an extra, you know, avenue of income, but it's also get, gets the name out there. People are like, oh, I was just out of this place and I got a cocktail to go. And wow, that's awesome. I got to go check this out, you know, mm-hmm. and then you can also increase what you're doing by varying. So you could have, there's a whole, see, there's a whole other menu for it, right? right. You've got your regular menu and then you've got a whole separate to go menu. Yep. Right. Which can be batched in and whatnot and keeping things going digitally and virtually is just sort of building content for, future because who knows you know what's going to
1: happen next oh fuck all right i don't even want to think about what's going to happen next zombie cannibal <laughs> ants or something like that i don't know <laughs> entirely okay we'll let you go soon there and you give us a lot of time we appreciate it but i just maybe before you go do you want to talk to us a little bit about without like sounding like a shill about like what it is you like about disarono and tia maria what and how bartenders should be using them the products yeah awesome uh the, so this is time for the
2: plug uh, i'm going to start with disarono <laughs> De Sirono is the original amaretto. So it was born in 1525. It's the first of its kind. Uh, it is not an almond liqueur. It is an almond flavored liqueur. Uh, so if people out there are worried about nut allergies and they've avoided it for that, they don't have to worry. It's completely nut free. What we use are the aromatic oils of apricot bits. They're considered a bitter almond, which contains trace amounts of cyanide. So all we do is we roast them and distill that to extract the oils for flavor. That along with Chinese rhubarb and Madagascar vanilla. Okay, uh, that's DiSorono pretty much not in a nutshell because there's no nuts involved. Uh, it's got a great history. It's got a great flavor profile. And to using cocktails, anywhere that you would see a simple syrup or a flavored syrup, why not use DiSorono? So in a daiquiri, right? You've made many a daiquiri instead of your your basic simple syrup. I go two parts rum, one part DiSorono, one part lime, and I call it decent dAC, And it's a fantastic cocktail, mm. right? You're just adding another layer of flavor, but in one ingredient. You're not adding six or seven more steps right? That, like right. we talked about. You can use it in a margarita. You can use it in any number of classic cocktails. And there's already classics out there like The Godfather that go back, The French Connection that go back using Di Yeah, it's a great modifier. It's also a great base spirit for things like the Di Fizz. Everybody knows the Amaretto Sour, the Di Sour. So yeah. Sure. Between the two, I do have a favorite child and that's actually Tia Maria. I'm <laughs> not going to lie. Tia Maria, for, for those who might not be aware, is... It looks like a, a bottle of a certain Irish cream because it's similar shape and dark glass, but it is a cold brew coffee liqueur, which also has a storied history going back to the late 1600s. And I'll tell anybody who wants that story another time. I won't bore you okay. with it, <laughs> but at least not right now. Uh, but yeah, it's it's cold brew coffee. It's overproof Jamaican rum and it's Madagascar vanilla. There's no artificial flavorings or chemicals or anything like that. We recently just updated the bottle. So people are like, ooh, now it's got vanilla. Well, it's always had vanilla. We're just sort of updating the bottle uh, to, to highlight that. And with everybody drinking cold brew coffee, with that being such a popular trend, we just wanna sort of highlight that we are 100% Arabica cold brew coffee.
1: Well, that's great. I, I I can speak from personal experience that if you own a bar, if you run a bar, if you work at a bar, follow Aaron on at Aaron underscore BA and DM him. I'm just throwing this out for you <laughs> because awesome. I will tell you this that uh, in my own personal experience. Aaron is amazing to work with and he will do anything for you. So hit him up. He's great. He's a great dude. He's great to work with. We really appreciate you doing this show on short notice, Aaron. That was a great conversation and uh, be well, my friend. I'll see you at Sugar Run soon. Yes, my pleasure. Um, in fact, I'm going to be out your way probably
2: the end of the month. So I'll swing by and have a cocktail. That's great. Looking forward right. to it, buddy. All right. All thanks right. again. Cheers. Thanks, thank you much. guys. Thank you. Bye.